Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta's graffiti art scene is robust, though the practice is controversial. Under Georgia law, it's considered a form of vandalism to create street art without consent. What defines graffiti as art versus vandalism? A new exhibition at Emory University's Rose Library investigates the culture, aesthetic, and historical phenomenon of the medium. Later this hour, curator Randy Gu will tell us about graffiti, a library guide to aerosol art. First, birds of a feather do not always flock together, and one of those birds is the owl. But this Saturday, you can see a rare group of them together at the annual Parliament of Owls Lantern Parade. The event is a project of Chantelle Ritter with the crew of the Grateful Gluttons and Black Sheep Ensemble. Chantelle joins me now via Zoom. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's such a pleasure. What is the origin story of this parade? Well, thank you for asking. It is one of my favorites. I had been thinking about Parliament of Owls for a while. Like I love the phrase and I love the symbology and I was thinking about it as a parade ensemble, but the more I thought about it, that, you know, owls are wise, owls see in the dark, owls see through illusion and deceit, owls are omens of change, but they do not flock. So I started thinking about that and that it would be such a nice standalone parade. It was, 2016, so it was just after the 2016 election when I was applying for the um, Cousins Studio in Midtown. So it's a wonderful um, thing where they give an artist a free studio in the Promenade Building in Midtown. Um, It's not entirely free. At the end of your two-year tenure, you owe them a piece of your work valued at $10,000. So I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about owls, and I was thinking about the agency of the wise in such a fraught and divisive moment. And um, 
the agency of our better nature, you know? So I thought, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pitch Parliament of Owls as my gift if I, for applying to the studio. And, you know, I sort of had to spell it out like, okay, it's not like an object that you're going to own. It's not a painting to hang on your wall. It's going to be a gift to your community. And I got it. So I got to have this beautiful free studio for two years and I knew Midtown, but like, I didn't really know Midtown. So I spent like my first year, like getting to know the area and uh, winding up for Parliament of Owls and of course, figuring out how to finance it. <laughs> and, um, and I met Midtown Alliance, which is a, a bunch of really wonderful folks and they loved it. I think it's wise to recognize our shared humanity and playfulness, you know, rather than frequently it's outrage and grief or whatever, but to see ourselves in play and to be reminded that our collective character is lovable is like what I'm up to with, you know, participatory parades. So Midtown Alliance was a perfect partner for um, Parliament of Owls. And the whole time I was at the studio, I was like trying to make the point wherever I could that like, look, if you support artists in your neighborhood, you get art in your neighborhood. You know, <laughs> why is Parliament of Owls in Midtown? Because they gave me a free studio and supported my work. And then the coolest thing is that Midtown Alliance just ran with that. So now they have a studio residency program and have gifted studios to like six or seven artists, promote their work gave them a stipend. So I'm really proud of that. You know, like imagine our city if every developer of the scale of Cousins gifted studios. Oh, talk about corporate citizenship, good corporate citizenship. Well, it's intriguing about the Parliament of Owls because a group of owls is not called a flock. It's called a parliament, hence the name of the event. What is the relationship between a parliament of owls and the togetherness the parade brings to the Atlantic community? Yes, well, a parliament rather implies smart people governing. So um, I just sort of like the idea of playing with that. Like, for example, the big lantern puppets that are in Parliament of Owls, their names, we have six flyers, and the names of the flyers are Darwin, Galileo, Confucius, Miriam and Webster, Marx, and Rachel Carson. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. We are very pointed with, <laughs> with these particular species. They have nicknames, but you get the idea, and that there would be imaginary species of owls that would, I like the idea of making up species. So they're all southern urban forest owls. <laughs> oh, okay. That urban forest specifically being Atlanta. Yes. Yeah, I, I've learned more about the parliamentary process recently. I didn't know very much about it and how it differs from a republic. A parliament is not made up of elected representatives the way ours are. A parliament needs to form a collaborative relationship. Yeah, that seems to apply here too. Now this is a black and white themed event. The attire, the lanterns, the lights are all black and white. 
why that motif and not color? Well, it looks great. It's um, I wanted it to be visually distinctive in a in color as well as you know the theme. So uh, making it in black and white. I'm really fond of pen and ink drawing, and of this is a project of mine where I've gotten to do tons of it. So there's my illustrations are all over it, and they're in black and white. So that sort of led in that direction. Asking for the entire in black and white has really given a fashion element to this parade that I love. And I think it's nicely suited to Midtown. It's elegantly weird. (laughs) Yeah, the fashion element does bring to mind, uh, I think it was Truman Capote's black and white ball back in the 60s. It sort of started the trend for that. Yeah, that's beautiful. What is the root of the parade? We begin at Colony Square, and they are a fantastic host. They have all the goods for a good start of a parade. Uh, We cross Peachtree Street on um, 14th, and we hang a left on Crescent. So we go past a couple of the businesses there. So that's really lovely spectatorship spots. And it's a small street parallel to Peachtree Street, so it's sort of a more intimate And then we uh, hang a left on 11th, and then we turn by Cafe Intermezzo. That is a great spectator spot. It's really fun to see all the people there when we turn. And then we're on Peachtree Street for a couple of blocks, which feels like Victoria somehow. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, we just just take one lane. We don't really mess up traffic. We have a phenomenal motorcycle Atlanta um, police officers with us. And then we bring it on back. We wrap it around Colony Square and come back into the plaza. Oh, that is so wonderful. Now, I read that owl lantern kits and workshops are offered on Wednesday and Thursday. What's in these kits and and what do the workshops entail? We always encourage invention, you know, like people that make up their own owls are phenomenal, but I have done a set of drawings, like a lot of drawings, of my different fictional owl species. So at the workshops, there are um, adult owls and owlets in several different species. And then there's a round lantern. So they're drawings that you cut out and glue onto the owls. And I love the fun of people chopping up my drawings and rearranging them. It's like a a good collaborative game for me. Like, I didn't tell you how it's supposed to go, but here's all the stuff. And then there are different forms. I've done a Gatsby owl and a Zelda owl because here we are in the 20s. Zelda is my new one for this year. And they're paper cuts. So Gatsby is actually a laser cut, so he's really easy to assemble. But for Zelda, you'll have um, an X-Acto knife and you can cut cut her out and assemble her. And then I've done some owl masks that are free. They're free on the website and I'll have them at the workshops. So uh, people hold a flashlight, usually their cell phone, underneath the mask for the parade and they look great. The website is fantastic. Why, thank you. One of the things that I saw on the website that resonated for me, Chantal, is the quote, civic play connects people. Would you talk more about that? Yes, thank you for seeing that. Um, 
I think we have a common calling to delight one another. And when we answer that call, it's, it's restorative. It's like the best of us. Like I like when, um, I want people to see the people that they share the city with as playful volumes of light, you know, to be reminded that our collective character is lovable and that where we live is a special place, like the civic nature of, I mean, people say like, oh, it's so boring where I live. And I think, well, what are you personally doing about that? <laughs> that, um, that, you know, part of your civic duty is making where you live a fun place to be. I think that just does us all a lot of good. We all want to love where we live and have weirdly elegant things happening there. You include music as part of these wondrous visual experiences. What can you tell us about the music in this year's parade? Yes, the Black Sheep Ensemble are some of our best parade friends. They're fantastic. They number 14 to 18 players. They've been parading with us since the beginning, since the very first Beltline Parade in you know, 2010. And they've really developed a street band style that's fantastic. done Parliament of Owls with us since the get-go. So they have owl things that are wonderful and they'll they'll get the <laughs> they'll get the crowd hoo-hoo-hooing, which is really fun. <laughs> they play owl fly away and um they're a blast. Oh tell me more puns. I love these, <laughs> you know. I'm sure you get tired of hearing that this event is a hoot. You know, it's it's funny. It's like it turns into owl season, and it, that's fine. Yes, this event is a hoot. Um, <laughs> it's good stuff. They've written the lyrics to Owl Fly Away. You probably know the song. Um, I do. If I don't have it on that website, I'll put it up because people, well, now that we've done it, this is our fourth parade, and uh, people have sort of caught on and started singing that, which makes it happy. People love to sing together. <laughs> parade creator Chantel Ritter. The Parliament of Owls Lantern Parade begins at 8.30 p.m. this Saturday, August 6th. The starting point is Colony Square in Midtown, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment... Emory curator Randy Gu helps us redefine graffiti as aerosol art. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The graffiti art scene in Atlanta is tremendous, though it comes with controversy. Under Georgia law, graffiti is a form of vandalism created without consent. So what defines graffiti art? versus vandalism. A new exhibition at Emory University's Rose Library investigates the culture, aesthetic, and historical phenomenon of the medium. Graffiti, a library guide to aerosol art, is on view through January 23rd. Randy Gu is the Assistant Director of Collection Development and Curator of Political, Cultural, and Social Movements Collections. He joins me now via Zoom. Randy, welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. When did graffiti and street art become popular around the country? Well, there's two separate things there, graffiti and street art. People in the communities view those as two separate things. One being graffiti, which the community calls writing, is focused on letters, typography. And uh, street art privileges images over words. And so there's a kind of difference there. But when folks in the country really became aware of what was called subway art at the time. It was in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Born in New York City, part of one of the four pillars of hip hop. Well, so then the exhibition on view at the Rose Library is graffiti writing rather than street art. That is correct, you got it. Okay. How is graffiti a communicative tool for protesters and activists? Well, one of the interesting things is that it's a giant conversation that goes on all over the country. I was walking close to some rail lines recently, and a gentleman was walking his dog, and he said, why are you taking pictures of that? It's just vandalism. And I was able to point out to him that it's actually a form of communication. And when you're talking about freight trains, that's a form of communication that runs all over this country. And ever since NAFTA in 1993, runs into Mexico and up into Canada. So it's a way for people who feel like they don't have a voice and for communities who are invisible to, as the graffiti writer named Apache in Chicago told me, to scream, I am still here. And so I was able to show this gentleman that some of the tags up there had dates when they were done, 
place names when they were done, the monikers and other things have this so that it's people talking to each other and other people in these mobile canvases, if you will. And at what point did graffiti gain recognition as a form of artistic self-expression rather than a way of defacing property? Does that also date back to the 60s? That, that's still an ongoing battle. People still are arrested for writing. But it was really in the 1980s in New York City when you started to see a movement into galleries and things like that, writers taking their art from the streets into the galleries. But it's still it's still a process. It's still a process underway. If you see photographs of graffiti writers um, who are still practicing, most of them will have their faces covered because they still trespass to write. But you mentioned there are some who have taken their work into galleries. Is that the only way to monetize their work? So do they not care about monetizing their work? The um, writing community is fascinating because they care about the history and the culture. They're all very aware of the history of graffiti. That's one of the reasons why they really enjoy the photographs of Jack Stewart that are in the exhibition. But um, most of them do it for the love of writing and the love of the culture, and they do not do it for money. They do it for recognition in the style of what they do to be accepted by their peers, but they're not motivated in that kind of a way. Hmm. You mentioned Jack Stewart. Would you describe his photographs along with those of H.J. Parsons, whose work is featured in this exhibition? Sure. Uh, Jack Stewart was a fascinating guy. He was born and raised here in Atlanta. So he was born in 1926. Um, he started taking art lessons at the High Museum when he was 10 years old in 1936. In his collection, we actually have drawings that he did at the High Museum. We have soap sculptures that he did and at the High Museum when he was a child. And it was obvious from the beginning, he was very talented. So he is a very accomplished art, artist living in New York City. He became the vice president and first provost of RISD. Oh, my. And at the time, they suggested to him that he needed to do a dissertation. And so he said, fine, I'll do it on graffiti. So he went out and photographed every other weekend for a couple of years, art that he found on subway cars, uh, right at the beginning, the birth of subway graffiti from like 1972 to 1979. And because he was an artist, he tried to photograph them in ways that were similar so that you could compare their aesthetic qualities. And so he actually wrote his dissertation about graffiti and the members of the writing community consider his dissertation the Bible, if you will. That's what they call it, the Bible. So here you have this high-achieving academic. You mentioned Vice President. Was he provost also at the Rhode Island School of Design? He was. Who is taking graffiti seriously as an art form? And 
I'm thinking of your academic appointment and stature in this storied collection at the Rose Library. Randy, what inspired you to create this exhibition for Emory? Over the past several years, Emory University has acquired several significant, notable photograph collections about graffiti. One is the Jack Stewart papers, and the other is the digital photographs of H.J. Parsons. And everyone I mentioned the collections to had the same reaction. They were very excited about the graffiti materials, but they were also surprised that Emory and the Rose Library would be interested in a subject like that. So, you know, after I explained that, of course, Emory was interested in what the French stencil artist Black Lerat called the biggest art movement in the world, which is graffiti. You know, it's the only art movement in the Western world created by children. All these folks were under 18. And so it got me thinking that people have expectations about what academic libraries have and don't have. And so I wanted to use this exhibition, which is about graffiti and gets people very excited, but that people are surprised that we have. And I did a little research and it turns out we have over 200 books here at the library about graffiti, graffiti writers and street art. We have movies, we have zines in our collection about graffiti. So my purpose was kind of twofold. One to show that graffiti is an important historical, cultural, and aesthetic phenomenon, but then also to kind of broaden people's ideas of what libraries collect and what they're interested in. Hmm. That is a wonderful way of your reaching out to a larger audience. Tell us about the interactive section of the exhibition, please. Well, one, one of the... Uh, great features of this exhibition, the one I'm most proud of, is we got the Atlanta writer Baser to paint a large panel for us because, you know, we usually see graffiti at a distance. We usually see style writing at a distance. And with this in the gallery, people can see it close up and see how he blended colors how he added these intricate details inside the letters, kind of all the things that go into creating his personal style. So the interactive table is a table with a bunch of markers. And we ask the people who come to the exhibition to create their own tags and to create their own monikers and masterpieces and then put it up on our wall of fame so we can add it to the collection of the materials that we have related to the exhibition. Oh, wow. Now, you pointed out the important differences between street art and graffiti. I'm hoping you can help me a bit more with the vocabulary because I want to get it right, Randy. Graffiti artists prefer to be known as writers and not artists. Where does aerosol art come in? <laughs> well, you know, there's, the writing community defines graffiti as a term applied to writing by those who do not do it. <laughs> so, okay. 
So I learned that I learned that the hard way. So I asked them, okay, I know you like writing and you don't like graffiti. What else can I use when I'm talking about this? And so style writing is one of their preferred terms. And then they also said aerosol art. So those are kind of more cogent ways to talk about it instead of using the G word, if you will. Okay. <laughs> Randy, unlike a painting or a photograph that's framed, graffiti is specific to a location, not portable. It can be painted over or erased to create a new mural or writing. What does the temporary or ephemeral aspect of graffiti add to the art form? Well, that's a really fascinating question, and I'm going to come at it a kind of a different direction. So this exhibition has the photographs of Jack Stewart and H.J. Parsons in it, and one of the really important aspects of photographs and the graffiti movement is that sometimes these photographs are the only proof that these pieces existed. Because Lois, as you mentioned, you can write something last night and it can be painted over by now during the day. These are by their very natural ephemeral pieces. And one of the things that makes Jack Stewart's photographs so extraordinary is in the fact in the 1970s, most of the writers did not photograph their own works. Cameras were expensive, film was expensive, processing the film was expensive, and most of that was out of reach. So if Jack Stewart and other people like Martha Cooper, Henry Chalfont, John Narr didn't take photographs of these materials, there would be no proof that they existed, even temporarily. So that is an aspect of writing that differentiates it from all the other art forms is this temporary nature. Randy Gu, Emery's curator of political, cultural, and social movements collections. Graffiti, a library guide to aerosol art, is on view through January 23rd at Emery's Rose Library. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, the one and only Alan Cumming and NPR's Ari Shapiro discussed their shared love of storytelling. This is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Actor and author Alan Cumming and NPR's Ari Shapiro might seem unlikely collaborators, but dig a little deeper. And the two megastars reveal multiple similarities. They both love storytelling, singing, dancing, writing, and searching for the fun parts of life. 
Back in March, while touring together for their cabaret show, Oak and Oi, the pair joined me via Zoom to talk about their friendship and the beauty of diverse creativity. Cumming began by explaining how the expression Oak is Scotland's version of Oi. It's och, like with a ch, like loch. It's like och is more, och, oh, for goodness sakes, och. Or, or if you do something <laughs> stupid, you go och. So it's very equivalent to oi, actually. Alan actually casually says och all the time. I do. I imagine as Eli Gold, you said your share of oi. I'm, yes, and I'm actually back filming him. I, don't, I haven't got any oys in the script yet, but I might pop one in the next one just for you. Oh, please. Would you for me, just as like a little Easter egg, a little oi. tip of the hat to... <laughs> We actually talk about the things that have made me an honorary Scot and Alan an honorary Jew. It's, yes. you know, one of the big one of the big turning points in this intense drama that he and I are performing. <laughs> A crossover <laughs> moment. You are both amazingly gifted storytellers, and Ari, we know you can sing from your association with Pink Martini. Alan, everybody on the planet knows how well you sing. Well, I think you've touched on something, which is that despite our seeming to be very different, we actually have a lot in common. And we are both storytellers. We do both enjoy sharing a laugh, sharing a song. And it's that banter, the kind of unexpected pairing, I think, that makes this work so well. Yeah. How it all came about was we'd met and we'd actually sung a song together. I sang a song with Ari when he did a show at Joe's Pub in New York a few years ago. But, we'd, you know, Ari had interviewed me a couple of times for, like, evenings about a, when I had a book out and stuff. Live events I, on stage, those sorts yes. of things. And after one of them, I, we, and I, I, we just got on really well and had a really good banter and sort of, you know, and I'm like, I'm the cookie, flighty Alan, and Ari's the serious journalist. And, uh, but, of course, we're not really either of those things wholly. So I, one time after we'd done an event, we were coming off, and I said, gosh, you know, we have such a good rapport. We should do a show together. And, uh, and he went, don't joke about a thing like that. I said, I will absolutely take you up on that offer if you're serious. And when was that? That was um, three years ago. June of 2019. Yes. You talk about how you're similar. Have people told you you kind of look like brothers? Oh, I'm so flattered. Me too. That means I look like a movie star. (laughs) And I look like a serious journalist. (laughs) No, but I sometimes wonder when we do perform live whether people are surprised to see what I actually look like and whether people are surprised <laughs> to hear that Alan has a Scottish accent because <laughs> yes. people are used to hearing my voice but not seeing me live and people are used to seeing Alan speak with an accent that is American, English, yeah. German, whatever. <laughs> well, but you know, when Alan introduced Mystery on PBS, I mean... I am Alan Cumming and this is Masterpiece Mystery. Could you have gone any further over the top? I mean, Mount Everest is not a high enough. Oh, I've got further to go. I've, de- I've definitely, I could go further. Don't, don't, don't tempt me. <laughs> but we loved it. We loved it because indeed, Ari, we're so accustomed to his brilliance with dialects. Who would think he was Scottish? Well, 
one of the things I learned from reading Alan's new best-selling memoir, Baggage, is that when oh, he was thanks. in drama school, the Scottish dialect was frowned upon. And that mm. was part of the reason you became so good at doing other dialects was because yes. you were told nobody wanted to see anybody perform with a Scottish dialect. And so it was scandalous when you did, was it Macbeth or Hamlet with a Scottish ha- Hamlet was voice. Yeah, when I did Hamlet, Hamlet, that was sort of a huge thing that there was a... There was a so I played Hamlet when I was in 93 in London, you know, in, in tour and then in London. And I was sort of 28 and uh, the sort of wunderkind. And um, I did it with a Scottish accent. And there was a cartoon in the in the, one of the newspapers. And it said, uh, you know, there should be a sign. Well, there was an article that said there should be a sign outside the Donmar warehouse saying that not all of the dialogue or the language of Shakespeare will be understood as it's been spoken in a Scottish accent. And then there was a cartoon of me holding the skull, saying, alas, poor Yorick, see you, Jimmy. It's terrible. (laughs) See you, Jimmy, is like an inside joke that Scottish people and English people would get. It's like, see you, Jimmy, is like, you know, like when someone's going to pick a fight, they go, see you, Jimmy. Uh, I'm going to blah, blah. See, see, one of the helpful things about Alan and I doing this show together is that I can serve as the interpreter for the Americans who might not get all of his Scottish idioms. How about the other, the last time we did it? And I didn't realize that for years now, literally years, I've been saying, when I said that something was false, I would say, oh, it was a tissue of lies. Yeah, I've and never it was heard only on stage that I discovered that that nobody in America knows what that means. Well, when the Ari other told thing me. you said that I'd never heard before was laughing like a drain. Is, oh, yeah, laughing like a drain. Lois, have you ever heard anyone say laughing like a drain? A drain? As in a drain. sink? Yeah, no. like a drain. Like it a... Goes, the water goes down. No, I have not. No. Okay, thank you. So I'm not just ignorant. No, and I've been to See, Scotland a few times. These are, these are the valuable lessons. Alan, one of the things that I loved, one of the many things I love about Scotland and Scots is the degree of expressiveness. I have thought that the Scots are sort of like the Italians of Northern Europe. Is that fair? <laughs> the food's I, not I, as good, I, 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 I like that. What did you say? I said the food's not as good, though. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> but, well, I, I like that in terms of we're very emotional, definitely, and sentimental. And, in, in, you know, I think sentimental is now a thing. Sentiment is sort of seen as a negative thing. I think over-sentimentality could maybe be a negative thing, but I think sentimentality itself is not. Um, and we definitely have... I mean, I always say that the two favourite pastimes in Scotland are drinking and over-sentimentality. Uh, we do give it. And when the, those two are combined, it's whew, watch out. But yeah, I think we're both, we're quite sort of um, fiery, but also soulful. And uh, we definitely, I mean, that's in a funny way, that's why I think I felt so uh, at home in New York when I moved there, is that everybody <laughs> in Scotland tells you what they think. And the same way in New York, you, know, you get lots of un- unwanted or unsolicited opinions. And so that's like Scotland as well. I love that. I love, I love, and also like, you know, everybody knows me in Scotland. So it's so hilarious when I go back. Alan is the only person <laughs> I've ever known who cannot walk a single city block without somebody pointing to him or whispering to the person they're walking with or saying, where do I know you from? Or better yet, they say to somebody walking with him, where do I know him from? And Alan <sighs> says, I can hear you. That's, yes, I always say I can hear you. I say, can I, or when they say to him, I'm walking with Grant or something, can I take a picture of him? And I'm like, I'm right here. I can hear you. I think it's funny when people decide to like think that you must they have to ask someone else. How refreshing that you love it, that you're not jaded 
or want to hide from it that you relish. Do you love that. it, Alan? Well, you said I, you love it. Here's the thing. I made a decision a long time ago that I would rather find a way to deal with the more negative to me aspects of being famous. The sort of the fact that people come up to you or the people, you know, the, just the, the lack of anonymity and the huge amounts of self-consciousness that you have to deal with. I made a decision that I had to deal with that because I wanted to live a life where I would still be able to go out into the world and have fun and engage with people rather than stay in my house or behind my gated, uh, you know, in my gated home. And I think I've done that quite successfully and I've made myself very available to, to the world. But also I have rules and I, and I think I'm like I talk to other people um, who are famous and I, you know, I, when people come up to me, I sometimes say things like, you know, I don't want to take a photo because if I take a photo with you, I'll have to take a photo with everybody. And I'm just having a drink with my friends here. My entire night will become about taking photos. And when you just talk to people and are kind and explain to, to them like a, like a friend or a, or a colleague, they really, really appreciate it. And it's like 99.9% .9 successful that I, how I maneuver myself in, in the world. And I think, you know, some places you go, it gets a little overwhelming. But then, you know, you've always got a choice to leave. But I, 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 I still feel very present in the world. And I have made even my bar in New York City, the one that Ari, um, oh. well, of course, people on the radio won't know, but Ari is wearing a club coming T-shirt yes. right now. That's very With promoting. an image of Alan illustrated by his husband, Grant. That's right. But this Smoking bar is such and... an amazing place. I mean, I know we're speaking to an audience of Atlantans or Atlanteans, but if you ever make it to New York, club coming is such a magical destination. It really is, isn't it? And, and I think it's my spirit. That's what I've done. I kind of have made a place that's got my spirit. And so that's nice as well. So that when I, when I, when I go, when people go there, I feel they're, you know, getting a wee bit of me. Um, and then when I go there, I always go behind the bar so I can both Then they bartend. get a lot of you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, any place that has a signature cocktail called Up and Coming has got Thank to you. be good. Yes. <laughs> you know, right. I was actually, when Alan was upstate recovering from COVID, I was at his house in New York City and for the first time saw the collection of unsold perfumes, soaps, and lotions that he created in what year was that? And they are called Coming in a Bar is the name of the bar soap. That's right. Um, coming in a <laughs> coming Bottle all over. is the lotion. Coming all over is the lotion. Uh, coming all over coming is the clean. lotion. <laughs> Coming clean is the show. This shower. is okay for public Ooh. radio because it's Alan's last name. Yes. It is strictly a <laughs> yes. reference to we Alan's last name. And, uh, That's all coming we are talking buff. about here. Coming off buff is the scrub. <laughs> oh, but, yes, I didn't there, see the scrub. Those are the ones down in my basement. Were you snooping around my basement? <laughs> what year was that? <laughs> well, like a thousand years ago. They're probably all off by now. The only one I use <laughs> is the soap because I think soaps don't go off. And that is my favorite, coming in a bar. It doesn't get much better than that. Mm. Ari, I wanted to ask both of you about something you touched on a few minutes ago, Alan's memoir, Baggage. Alan, you've written two memoirs. Yes. Brilliant. You, you are an amazing writer. Ari, clearly you're not such a bad writer or <laughs> oh, journalist thanks. or reporter. And yet I, I just marvel not that you each have talents beyond those for which you're best known. Yours as a journalist, Ari Allen, yours as an actor. But where you find the time for that <laughs> creative energy to put that part of your creativity into practice? Alan's the busiest man I've ever met, and I've met some very busy people in my life. 
Am I really? Uh, for, for me, speaking personally, the balance between performing live with Alan or with Pink Martini and doing a two-hour nightly news program every day, they're both time-consuming and they both uh, take a lot of energy, but each one feeds the other. So I may take a week's vacation and tour with Alan or take time off and go perform with Pink Martini. And either of those could be exhausting, but they're exhausting in an exhilarating way and in a fun way. And I come back feeling somehow, even though this sounds paradoxical, both drained and energized and ready to get back into mm. the next thing. Alan, I don't know if that's your experience too. Oh, totally. I feel like I do, you know, all the different things I do, people are always like, oh gosh, you know, how do you do all these? And I actually think it's about focus in that I am very, very focused uh, in the moment. Uh, on what I'm doing and then I drop that and I immediately focus on the next thing I mean it's kind of you could say there's other other names for it I suppose but I like to think of it as focus and um, and I, I'm also focused on having fun you know I just think you've, I just be really committed to what you're doing when you're doing it and that means and also you know fun is the answer I I do all these different things because I like them there's nothing I do that I don't like and if I don't like it I'll stop it there's a story we tell on the show about the origin of the original Club Coming, which was when Alan was doing Cabaret on Broadway for the second time, and he was also filming The Good Wife by day. So yeah. he's doing eight performances a week, starring in a Broadway show and also playing a leading role in a TV network drama. And he was concerned that he wouldn't be able to go out and have fun with his friends, which if I were in that position would be the last thing on my mind. <laughs> and so he got an alcohol company to sponsor his dressing room backstage <laughs> at the Broadway theater where Cabaret was happening. And That's that right, was baby. the original club coming. And that tells you more about Alan than I think any other story. Well, you are social. I wonder if you ever feel slighted, both of you, by the fact that... That I haven't won a Tony yet? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> No, sorry. I'm sorry. Where's my Peabody? It's up and coming, Ari. Maybe, <laughs> maybe after this, if there's a category for the cabaret. No, people are categorized, and others like to put you into these neat little boxes, niches, and clearly you can be a polymath. Do you resent it when some people say, why? are you singing when you really ought to be immersed in in your journalism art? When I started singing with Pink Martini some 12 or 13 years ago, I was really afraid that it would somehow harm my journalism career, that people would judge me or label me, or it would hold me back because they would think, oh, somebody who does that can't interview the president. And I realized over the years that that voice was not coming from anyone but me, that that was my own chip on my shoulder. Fantastic. And that once I let go of it, I actually wasn't being judged and I wasn't being held back and I could enjoy what I was doing. And that's been a realization and a process and it's been liberating. And, and now I am able to really enjoy both of those things and occupy this place that feels like a unique expression of who I am and what I love to do. And I and I feel really grateful for that. And NPR News has no problem with it. I mean, so far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> Still in the air. I've had that in the past where people say, oh, why, you know, you just did a, you know, Shakespeare film or Shakespeare on Broadway or something. Why are you doing a Smurfs film or why are you, you know, doing something frothy? And I Spice think this world. Spice World, and the list goes on. There's a lot. I mean, and my, I always say to them: first of all, you're a snob, 
right? That's because basically they're saying, I think you should be doing more rarefied, heightened things that I think you should be doing. First of all, it's about them, what they want. But actually, um, you know, like you say, that when, when I come to do something new, something different, whatever I've done before kind of fuels me in the new thing because I've been, done something different and I've, if I've done something light and funny and frothy, I, I have used a different part of myself and I'm ready to kind of then let some of the darker side out in the next job. So there's that. And there's also the fact that, you know, you have to earn money to live. And, uh, you know, sometimes you don't, sometimes the dark, despairing, rarefied things don't pay. But Smurfs do. Smurfs pay, let me tell you. Smurfs um, pay. It's the gift that keeps on giving. But I, but so th- like this year, I'm going to do a dance theater piece for like four months. So a quarter, no, a third of my year. I'm going to be, you know, working on this bizarre dance piece uh, for 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 hard for no money and for well, I'm being paid, but do you know what I mean? It does not keep the dogs in milk bones. Let me tell you. And so <laughs> I've I've um you know the rest of the year I'm doing some things, other things that I that will sort of subsidise that. Sometimes they're things that I actually find a challenge and have all those other ingredients. Other the other thing, the next thing I'm going to do is not that. It's just sort of a fun sort of thing that will uh, tax me in a different way but will but, but they actually will be taxed more because I'll be getting paid more <laughs> but I, I keep going back to your memoirs which are so brilliantly written and so emotional um how long did each take you oh well long uh, several I mean a while I mean years uh because I was doing it I mean the last one the baggage uh uh came i mean because of the pandemic i had a long the longest stretch ever you know i think many people could say that actually about the their uh, writing or artistic output during the pandemic it was the longest time an uninterrupted time i had to write ever in my life and so i kind of got got the measure of the book and was able to finish it during that time but you know not my father's son i wrote i used to on my days off from the good wife that's when i, I wrote it during that i would go to this place before I, now I have a study in my house, so I write there. But when I, I used to go to this place called the Writers Room. It was in in New York, and it's a place you sort of join, become a member, and you go into this big, big room with all these little booths, with and nobody's allowed to speak, and um, and so it's just all these writers just sort of in a in a, wow. and it's actually a great sort of energy to sort of feel you know encouraged, and you can speak in the kitchen. And there's a little bit you can go for a lie down as well. You can have just <laughs> little bean bags to lie down. I loved it, and it was really so. I actually would go there and write, but it took me, you know, a long time. And I've done, you know, se- several books like that. Um, I, it's not. I don't know. I actually, I don't think I would could just do. I mean, I've never just done one thing of anything. You know, one uh, discipline. So I don't know that. I mean, who knows if you know? I I didn't act anymore. Maybe I would just write all the time, but. I actually, I like the fact I can leave it and go away and do something else and come back to it. I feel that you have a greater perspective and, you know, you're not so in it all the time. But then it's also frustrating because the, the annoying thing about a book is that, like when you've done, when you've written quite a lot of it, and then you have to go away and make a film or something. When you come back to it, you think, oh, God, I've got to read it again and got to go back to the beginning. And <laughs> <laughs> well, I, ju- find out I what just you've done. marvel because actors... Many actors are most comfortable with other people's words. I find mm. often with musicians that um, they're so accustomed for practicing hours yeah. on end and 
express themselves best through this musical language. But here, between good wife rehearsals, I'll sit down and write this brilliant work. Alan, I remember your review of um, David Sedaris's book, I think it oh, was yes. 2018. Uh, that was mm. a fabulous essay, and, and you called his humor Sedarian. And when, when I interviewed David, he was in Atlanta the day after that Sunday Times essay, um, review of yours came out in the book review, and I said, my God, that Alan Cumming could extol your talent that way, you must be soaring. And he said, Sidarian or am I Davidian? And uh, <laughs> I thought, okay. That was good. That oh, was that's great. Perfect. Well, I thought you were going to say something. Like, oh, he was just so overwhelmed with, with <laughs> no, but actually he came back with a better gag. Yeah, yeah. Actor Alan Cumming and NPR's Ari Shapiro from our conversation recorded earlier this year. More information about Cummings' book, Baggage, is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., We'll hear about Horizon Theatre Company's production of Square Blues on stage through August 21st. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.